This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Today, I'm so very, very pleased to have with me as my guest, Dr. Deanna Rader, a crematee scholar from Simon Fraser University, where she is chair of Native Studies and an associate professor in the English department. She's also the co-chair of the Indigenous Voices Awards, the IVAs, and one of the collaborators of the book Cold Case North, published by the University of Regina Press, the very book we'll be speaking about today. I should add that the Crime Writers of Canada just shortlisted Cold Case North for its 2021 Best True Crime Award. Before we go any further, I'd also like to say that I'm recording for the first time in a while from Montreal, on the unceded territory of the Kanyakahaga, and a meeting place for many First Nations, including the Kanyakahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabeg. Diana, welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you, Linda. And I'm here speaking from the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Let's get started uh, talking about Cold Case North. Let's talk about the story that informs the book. We know it's about the disappearance of Jim Brady and Nelby Hockett. How did you learn about the story? Why is it or is it personal to you? It's absolutely personal. This is a story that I grew up hearing about. So I was born in the early 60s and, of course, don't remember 1967 when Jim Brady and Abby Halkett went missing without a trace. But it was a story that my mother would refer to. It was such a mystery that the community constantly made reference to. What could have happened mm-hmm. to them? Where would they be right now? What 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 might have been missed? And so I have lots of stories about that I remember hearing, including my mother's explanation that UFOs must have come and just taken them away. <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned your mother's telling of the story in the book. Could you, aside from that particular theory, could you tell us perhaps about her other theories than some of Uncle Frank's theory and explain perhaps to the listeners who Uncle Frank is and then perhaps about your own theories? Well, certainly Jim Brady was well known to my grandparents and he used to go up to my family's house, which was called the Brown house, presumably because it was Brown and, Mm -hmm. uh, and go and have tea with, uh, with my grandfather. But he also um, lived right next door to my auntie Jane and my uncle George, just in the middle of town. This is a very small town of LaRange in Northern Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And Abby Halkett of course lived on the reserve with some of my other relatives and was very well known. And so, when the official verdict came in by the RCMP that they had gone missing and that it was expected that they had tried to walk out of the uh, of their very remote campsite, uh, that was met with derision. Yeah. The idea that these two men would have made done anything risky to try to walk out of really impenetrable territory was impossible, and so. A lot of theories started to circulate around about who might want one or both of them dead and what kind of foul play was involved. Mm -hmm. Now, my Uncle Frank grew up 
with no with Jim Brady almost like a, a big brother. He was um, the son of Pete Tompkins, one of the famous five Métis activists. So of those five, there's Joseph Dion, Pete Tompkins, my uncle's father, as well as mm-hmm. Felix Kalahu, Malcolm Norris, and of course. Jim Brady. And this is back. Uh, so this is a lifelong relationship that Uncle Frank had with Jim Brady. And of course, he knew Abby Halkett and LaRange as well. And so he was first to actually come up with more detailed theories that it was, um, you know, in fact, criminals who wanted to take over a found claim that was, would be worth millions of dollars. And those are, again, stories that I heard from Uncle Frank sort of more when I was an adult and we start, we got closer. He would tell me very detailed reasons why he was certain mm-hmm. that um, they had been murdered and that the, the authorities had covered it up or at least were so disinterested that they um, didn't proceed. And the, the idea that two troublemakers were out of the way. So, you know, good riddance, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so those were all the stories that were floating around that that I heard. I think when I came into this story, um, it was actually, I remember very clearly my uncle around 2016, even though Uncle Frank had told me about his theories around Jim Brady and Abby Halkett's going missing without a trace, he he explicitly called me to tell me to come to Saskatoon from my home here in Vancouver and to let's get to the bottom of this. And he would have been in his very late eighties at that time. And so I went and I, I didn't feel as though I necessarily had a theory other than I knew that my family, the community were right in that Mm -hmm. it's just impossible. If you know the land up there, when, especially knowing that Jim and Abby had a boss who was going to replenish their supplies. So he, he would have been, um, returning within the week or so. If they had gotten lost, they could have simply made their way back to their campsite and sat, you know, and waited. Mm-hmm. They could have cut down trees that would have been a visual clue to planes flying overhead so that there would be a way of, of them being saved. So it seemed to me obvious since there was no remains ever found that that it was clear that that they had been murdered. Well, I should mention there are two other theories that were floating around. One is that they fell ill and Jim was a diabetic. And so this idea that he fell ill and Abby wouldn't have left his side. And so he died and somehow Abby also died. But keep in mind that Mm -hmm. the community went up north that summer. And once the RCMP pulled out, they stayed for the entire summer. These are like state of the art trackers. And who found smudges on the walls of rocks. You know, there was never any remains um, that were found. But also, there was a theory that bears had come along and might have eaten them. But the bear isn't going to eat their boots or their Geiger <laughs> counters. You know, there was, it's like they they would have had to have hidden themselves in and, and hidden any trace of themselves so they could perish. It's implausible. It's absolutely implausible. And so... Those theories I never held much stock in. How exactly they met a bad end, uh, my mind was open. I just knew that I had to do what my Uncle Frank told me to because of, well, his role in the family, you know, is that certainly my oldest uncle at the time, and also just a, a sense of caring. Mm-hmm. I needed to do what I could do. 
Why you? Uncle Frank <laughs> appoints you as this person who must bear this responsibility. Why you? Well, it's interesting. I do have a cousin, Davy Clinton, who did do some driving around in Saskatchewan with Uncle Frank, trying to figure out certain mysteries. And certainly I know there have been other family members who have followed, tried to follow up on some of the leads. But when I finished my PhD in 2007, it was a big moment in my life, obviously. I mean, I was in my early 40s. I had three kids. It was not what I expected I would have the opportunity to complete and do. And and then on top of it, even get a university job. That was just a, a miracle in itself. And, and, and it was something I think my Uncle Frank really admired because he was somebody who loved education and would have loved more education. And I think he thought, oh, she's a researcher. She she'll be able to do this. Of course, I'm a, <laughs> you know the kind of researcher I am. I'm a literary critic, right? Let me find that book in the library for you. You know. <laughs> so, but he was certain that I had the skills to follow. And in the end, I mean, he was right in that I thought that a lot of great fortune came, um, including my the, the involvement of my partners, uh, Michael Nest and my cousin, mm-hmm. Eric Bell, who was phenomenal as well. In a sense, we're laughing. Yes, you're a literary critic, but he didn't, he didn't appoint the wrong person. <laughs> All we have to do is read the book to know that this is true. Tell us about that process about taking that responsibility seriously and then working with Michael or or finding Michael? How did that evolve? Oh my goodness, Linda, that's an amazing story. And I think in some ways it's representative of this whole search. A typical search, um, you know, or even a research plan would involve making up sort of five-year plan where you lay out exactly what strategies you will do. And I really was instead governed by, I hate to use the word serendipity because that sounds so frivolous. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I just imagine I was holding a flashlight and I could see the few steps in front of me and I couldn't see much more. So I would just take those next steps. And so one of the first things was, um, the only reason why Michael and I even met each other was that he his previous book was written with um, an uh, Indigenous man who lives in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so Michael was in Vancouver for family reasons, and he noticed that I did work on Indigenous autobiography. And so he emailed me and asked if I wanted to go for coffee. And that's where I discovered what an amazing person he is. Mm-hmm. He's a, an anti-corruption specialist in the um, mining industry, particularly, but he's also a born researcher. And so we had the chance, I remember he and his partner came over and had dinner with my family and we made this friendship. And that's all of that was completely separate from this project. Then he gave me a call to let me know that he was moving to Montreal from Australia because his partner had decided to start a PhD at McGill. And I was talking to him on the phone just at that point when he was moving to Canada. And and I was, at this point, had the burden of figuring out how to follow up on Uncle Frank's dictates, you know, to find Jim and Abby. (laughs) And it occurred to me that Michael would have a lot of free time and that this story would really engage him. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems almost 
well, certainly presumptuous of me, but I was right. Michael was the perfect person because he came from out of the country. So he didn't, Mm -hmm. he didn't know anything about any of these stories. And so all of his questions were genuine and it was a tremendously great foil for Mm -hmm. me who had heard most of these stories before. Mm I agree. This whole process was so, it's so amazing that the two of you met each other and then you embarked on this journey along with your cousin, Eric, and then began the process of researching. Did it ever feel strange that the RCMP cast this case aside and then here you are going forward, advancing this kind of investigation and uncovering so much more. What did that feel like? Again, thinking about that flashlight, taking steps, you know, one step after the other. We were initially just hoping to get to the point where we would find out enough information that we would then hand it to them and they would be re-inspired to follow up and and the the rest would be history. And my cousin Eric um, runs the ambulance system in LaRange and has for the last 25 years. So he has a very close working relationship with the RCMP because, of course, you know, he's at every tragedy yeah. that, that happens, or at least his, his people that work for him do are. And so at the, originally, I wanted to think of the best possible scenario and bring this information to them and be relieved of the responsibility of going any further. Mm -hmm. And so in the first trip that we made up to Lower Foster Lake, and that story was amazing to see the mines working. And of course, we're really relying on the Cree or Neiyao and the Pitakustan traditional knowledges that were employed on on that lake. Mm -hmm. And I described that a little bit in the book. But when we came across compelling evidence of human remains, almost immediately. I really thought we would get back on the plane, go back, contact the person who was responsible for the historical file, and then, and then be done. You know, it would would go (laughs) over and everything else would happen. And I think when we realized that they considered it too remote, which of course, think about it. It's uh, ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's, it's, this is the, the unit that specializes in cases in northern Saskatchewan what there isn't remote from if you think about that perspective Mm -hmm. so uh, you know I think at that point we were sort of a growing realization that nobody really cared as much as we did I I don't mean I I mean when I say we I include the community but Mm I and the families of Jim and Abby otherwise they were as far as the dominant record would say just gone The book really has that effect, though. I found that I cared deeply. Uh, In fact, by the end of the book, I was weeping. Mm. And so I I feel like it does that work. That is, it doesn't just track what you and Eric and the community and Michael have been doing, but it also creates this kind of space where we really feel compelled. So I guess I wonder, was the book always part of the plan? Did you think that you would always have this book at the end point of the journey? I can't really say that we did. We knew that there would have to be a recording of everything that we found. But when I first lured Michael into this research (laughs) project, 
I really didn't have much compensation uh, other than we, you know, I think he got a free trip out of La Ranch. <laughs> but he, um, we, you know, I tried as best I could to cover uh, his expenses, but I mean, he, he wasn't paid for it. I did say, well, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that he was an author, that it, it certainly we could work on a book together or he could write a book separately, however that would happen. I didn't realize that the sort of laser eyed focus he had and the ability he had to have it written really so quickly and so, and with research done so thoroughly. So that was exciting. And I just want to make a, a point to say that he in fact has, uh, is, has made almost nothing. The vast majority of the royalties are going to scholarships in the name of James Brady and Absalom Halkett. And so uh, <laughs> even that, he, I guess he has the satisfaction of having written a book, but also both my and Eric's devoted friendship. <laughs> <laughs> for what that is worth. <laughs> a lot. It's worth a lot. So then tell us about getting the the process of getting the book to print. Did you meet with resistance or excitement or enthusiasm? What was the process like when you made the initial pitches? Well, at first, our, our contacts were with Jim and Abby's children. Mm -hmm. We would not have proceeded if they hadn't been supportive of this. And in fact, one of the things I knew about Michael as a research partner is that if I, I knew that at any point, if I had said, put down your pen, he would have, he understood um, how that works. And so, and he was as invested in the cooperation of an, an endorsement, I should say, really of the, of the community. And so we first approached them. We also had approached through my cousin, Eric, both the Métis Association in Northern Saskatchewan and also the um, Lac La Ronge Indian Band. And they were actually financially supporting supporters of this final um, trip to Lower Foster Lake. And so we ha also had their endorsement. Going to press, we actually did initially approach a big publishing house in Canada. And while we probably would have done well with them, the story was so completely new to them that they they were very put off by the idea of multiple authors and had, had suggested to us that we could amalgamate the voice. And that sounds, I, I guess, maybe from a publisher's point of view or an editor's point of view, you know, maybe ideal, but we actually didn't think then it would capture the, these varying perspectives. And mm -hmm. when um, the idea came to contact the University of Regina Press, one of the reasons, besides knowing uh, Karen Clark through my own work as an acquisitions editor, was the fact that we didn't have to explain to people in Regina, mm -hmm. you know, who these people were or why the story was important. And so that was a, a tremendous boon for us. And then the process took a, a bit, as 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 it takes, <laughs> as as it does. Tell me a little bit about what what kind of work this book does, not only for the community on a larger scale, but even for you, what work does it do? Well, one of the things, and Uncle Frank passed in 2019. Uh. So he was able to hear um, our good results, although he didn't get to see the book in the end. But, but he was very confident. And in fact, his final words to me, um, he told my cousin Connie um, to phone me um, to say, you know, not to give up. And so I, I, I knew that was important. But also he had been in, in contact with 
a grandchild of Abby Halkett's, who felt a lot of distress, as did a, a little cousin of mine, actually, also connected to this story, um, a personal distress. Like how could a family member, how could nobody official care about mm-hmm. this? And so one of the incredible effects that we didn't totally calculate was how much peace this brought this particular grandchild, but also other members of the family, a, a sense of feeling that the story has been told mm-hmm. now. No one is going to forget who um, forget Jim and Abby. And these are remarkable people. I mean, yes, exactly. their lives were so rich and they were so talented uh, and they were in no way disposable people. They were still missed to this day. Yes. And so that was what we accomplished. And that set, that, that came with a lot of satisfaction and unexpected satisfaction. We didn't, um, we hoped that it would do good work in the family, but that we, but we hoped mm-hmm. that we hoped that it would do good work in the family and in the community. And that seems to be the case. One of the wonderful things we've been able to do is go to online book clubs. And there was one in LaRange and we got to via virtually via zoom i uh, meet some of the people around the table and to, you know it is it really is great and so for me because i mean most of my life is spent if not in a classroom then behind in my desk trying to write with a lot of dusty papers around me this this, <laughs> this felt pretty um concrete way of contributing to the community and that was really gratifying in a again unexpected way does it do any anything personally for you having done this book. So there is that the interaction with the book clubs and so forth. Was there anything else that you felt that it might have accomplished for you? You know, when you're an English professor in any family, especially if it's a family, I'm thinking that's not that used to university study, doesn't have a lot of access to university study. I always feel as though People think I carry a red pen in the back pocket. <laughs> I'm dying to correct people. What in fact, you know, I'm, I, 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 that's not my approach at all. But I, I get it. I get how the fear of the English teacher has been, <laughs> or the tyranny of the English teacher has prevailed. <laughs> and so I think one of the really wonderful things was the fact that I kind of feel in my family, I, I have been able to play a role that's. Um, less remote. And I felt closer to my cousins that I haven't been able to see for a long time and, and really feel a little bit like this work has helped bring me home. And, and this is actually my mom's home community. I'm an army brat. So I've grown up on (laughs) army across Canada. And so I, there wasn't, there's no real place to return to um, except for family in, in LaRange. And that's been really healing, I guess, if you like it, it um, warms my heart. Lovely. It seems to me from what you've been saying that this book is is written for multiple audiences. So I wonder if you could characterize the multiple audiences of the book. If you go from the closest, most intimate, it was something that we, um, we actually had Anne Dorian, who is Jim Brady's daughter, one of, one of his daughters, read the book partly just to ask if we were capturing things. And so we wanted the people who were closest to not come across any phrases or portions that may hurt them. And so that was, that was certainly probably our prime audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's the community. We wanted um, certainly 
people in northern Saskatchewan or even on the prairies to, to appreciate the incredible contributions that Jim and Abby have made. But then as you go out, I know that I think in some ways it's a it does provide a model of Indigenous research. So I think there is almost an academic element to it that people can understand mm-hmm. their are different considerations than getting the job done, if you like. And so that was an audience. And then a great, even larger than that, you know, this is a story worthy of national attention. And so we did want the average person to be able to read it and to connect with it. And I think Michael's done an amazing job with sort of the, the page turner aspect to it as he goes and sorts through the evidence. So I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. Thank you. I, well, okay. My funny, my best story for that is I'm talking on the phone with my cousin, Eric, and this is, we've got the final draft in our hands all before it's gone to the publisher. And so I'm talking to him on the phone in the parking lot. Cause he called me just as I was leaving work. And so I'm sitting in the parking lot talking to him and Eric is saying with great excitement that as he was reading it, he couldn't wait to see how it ended. And A, he had read the story before. And B, he did, was there. So uh, we, we can vouch that we found it gripping. Very fast paced. It's really well done. I know I wanted to ask you, at least at some point, do you feel, do you feel like there would be a, a sequel to this book? Do you feel... Has anything surfaced since the book's publication? What has been really exciting is there's been some corroborating evidence that has come forward. So some of our theories, and I just give you one small example. The RCMP found a raft. There was very little evidence on the territory in Lower Foster Lake, but they found an abandoned raft um, that they felt must have been built by Jim and Abby as a, a, a sort of their escape plan as they were sort of lost in the woods, which of course made no sense to anybody, you know. But anyway, uh, the person who built that raft in 1966, so a year before Jim and Abby disappeared, he heard about the book, read the book. Uh, re- realized he was the one that had built the raft. No way. <laughs> and of course, he just ran, abandoned when he uh, left. <laughs> so, I mean, there are little little things like that, and that, and and I I suppose we always wonder if um um what else will arise. Maybe to be honest, I expect more will come out, and that's what's keeping us excited. Is there anything that you? would like to add or anything you feel like I should have asked you anything else that that you think we should talk about today? I love to emphasize that. um, And it's a point that Michael makes in the book, but these were two men at the center of the world. You know, Jim had this admirable library that he drew on and the ideas really inspired him and in all the work that he did. Abby was known to, you know, as a student who had returned back um, to LaRange and was also um, sort of really intrigued by political ideas. Mm-hmm. And so they were, um, it, when, when I was a little kid growing up, I thought of LaRange as this remote, distant place. And what learning about Jim Nabby has reminded me was how in fact it was in the middle of everything. 
every political conversation that was happening, mm-hmm. every um, point of context. And even just thinking about Indigenous people in Canada, uh, you know, they were sort of just before the Red Power Movement, they were doing the kind of work that inspired future generations of activists. And they were doing it in much less encouraging times, if you like. I mean, in by 1967, you know, Abby, for example, as a, a First Nations or an Indian under the Indian Act of Canada, would have only had the vote for seven years, oh, you know, when he was a man and about 40 years old. So it was, you know, most of his adult life, he, he didn't have the right to vote in a federal election or, you know, have mm-hmm. any kind of um, power. And so, I mean, I think that historical context um, and what they accomplished during that time is really remarkable. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Rader, for joining me today on Getting Lit with Linda. Thank you so much. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.